Good morning, church family. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. You'll have to excuse my voice this morning. I'm fighting allergies this week. Probably the worst I've ever had in my life. So much pressure, it caused toothaches and just all kinds of trouble here. So we're going <clears> to <throat> do the best we can this morning. Uh, Mark chapter 1. We're going to be in verse 14, 14 through 28. Now, I know what you may be thinking. Josh, you preached five verses for an hour last week, and this is 14 of them. Don't worry. We'll make it. I promise. Um, and I don't think it'll be more than an hour. So, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 28. Um, and we're going to look together at Christ's authority being established. Um, Mark does a very specific thing here um, in these next few verses that we're going to tackle together. So um, it's, it's a lot of reading, so if you would stand with me. If you're not able to stand, that's okay. But we're going to read through the whole text together um, in honor of the one who gave us this word. Um, so let's start in Mark chapter 1 and verse 14. Now after John had been delivered up into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As he, was pointed, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them and left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus, the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were arguing among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to come together today to see the authority that Christ established at the beginning of his ministry. Thank you for revealing that to us as a church body that we can understand that the one who has called us, the one who, who is our, our, that we are reunited with, who is our, our, um, our Savior, our King, and our Head, um, has authority over all things, and that we get to see that on display this morning. Um, I pray that you will remove any hindrances from me, uh, help my voice to stay strong, um, and my, my faculties to remain active, and that the words that I speak would be glorifying to you and, and honoring to the text. We love you and praise you in your holy name. Amen. All right, you can be seated. <clears throat> um, now, as, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, um, as we were preparing to read the text, Mark does something absolutely amazing in these uh, 14 verses. So he's going to take 14 in this 14 through 28 passage of chapter 1. He is going to take in his normal triplicate fashion, and he's going to show us him exerting authority and establish authority over the church. He's going to show us establishing authority 
over the message, the scriptures. And he's going to show, um, show that he's established his authority over the spiritual realm or demons, Satan and his minions. So we're going to see him come right out of the gate here, um, swinging, if you will, as far as his authority goes, establishing exactly what um, he is going to do on this earth. Now, this is, of course, coming off of the last text that we spoke to or spoke about last week. Um, the, the Spirit has filled him. He won the wilderness victory. And now he's coming to show that he has authority over all these different things. Um, now, it is important to, to know that Mark rarely uses specific places or specific times. And so when he does, he's trying to make a very particular point. Um, and so we're actually going to see in verse 14 here in just a moment um, that he is giving us the time, which was when John had been delivered into custody, and also where, preaching in Galilee. So Mark is setting up something that he wants to, us to pay particular attention to um, based on those two things. Um, so we really have to lean in and understand what he's saying. Now, there is some time set in between verses 13 and verse 14. So if you look at verse 13 and verse 14, we don't know how much time elapsed, but it is clear, um, both in Mark and in other Gospels, that there is a gap of time between verse 13 and verse 14. Um, so it wasn't like the next day after, after he defeated uh, Satan in the wilderness, it wasn't the next day that he went into Galilee. There is a gap of time there. Again, we don't know how long, um, but there was some time between Jesus' baptism and John being handed over. Um, and then the primary thing that I want all of us, and I'll be referencing this word throughout the message today, so um, it's the Greek word exousia, E-X-O-U-S-I-A. It means authority, but it's not just authority as in a police officer who would have authority, but it's the authority of God. It's a God-like authority over the spiritual realm. And it's, it's the, the word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word that is used to describe God's power over all the authorities of the, the earth, over supernatural authorities. It's the authority that he gives to his kings, his priests, and his saints. It's a very particular kind of authority, um, and, and this word is used over and over again in this text by Mark. Mark is trying to make sure that we see that he is establishing Christ's authority, or Christ is establishing his authority, um, and Mark wants us to see that. Um, so that's an, uh, and the idea that we're going to take away from this message is Christ's overall authority over all things. So let's begin. My, my first point is authority of the message. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15 together first. Verses 14 and 15 read, Now after John had been delivered up into custody... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So a couple things to notice first is that this text teaches us that the call for repentance did not cease with John. John is out of the picture now. If you guys remember his message from last week, John was teaching that the, the people that came out from Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria that were coming to, to see the spectacle that was John the baptizer, he was preaching a message of repentance, but that message of repentance did not stop with John. Um, in fact, Jesus carries it forward and, and is going to expand on it even further. And so when we look here at first uh, of John being removed from the picture, I want to point something out here that Mark is very careful to align, and that is that John had been delivered up into custody. Now, some of you might show that it says 
or arrested or put into chains, depending on what version you have. But that idea of into <coughs> excuse me <coughs> into custody is a translation so that we would understand. But the, the Greek phrase here in the original language is, is not arrested, it's actually not put in prison. There's other terms that could be used for that. The term here is actually handing over. It's just a very, just a very clean statement of handing over. And this is the same phrase that Mark uses in multiple places throughout his gospel, such as chapter 9, chapter 10, multiple times in chapters 14 through 15, for the Son of Man being handed over, or Christians being handed over to specific circumstances. And the idea here is Mark is trying to get us to understand that God handed over John into the particular circumstance. This is, this is a handing over. This is not just an arresting. Now, we know that John was arrested, so the translators are able to add on into custody because we know in John's particular situation, he was arrested. But this, this phrase of handing over is the same idea of all of Mark with the idea of God being in charge of circumstances. And Mark wants us to understand that John was simply partaking in the circumstances that God handed him over to. He is accent, uh, accentuating the, um, the sovereignty of God. So it's important to understand that because he's, he's setting a pattern here. And if you haven't noticed, Mark is extremely good at taking small nuanced things to really pack a punch into what he's saying. And so when we see here the, the handing over of, of John into custody... Um, it's, it's a, that's the circumstances that the sovereign God gave him because of the gospel. Mark is tying in the gospel into persecution. Because if you recall in other gospels, we know that John was handed over because he preached the gospel and he held Herod accountable for the truth of scriptures. So it was a Christian persecution. It was actual persecution that was from Herod to John. And that's the reason why he was taken into custody. And Mark is making a point here to show to the Roman Christians under Nero, remember last week we talked about Rome, Rome under, uh, excuse me, Christianity in Rome under Nero was some of the most brutal times in Christian history. And so Mark is saying that the circumstances that a sovereign God hands people over to is his decision. John himself was not spared from the sovereignty of God handing over to persecution. John is comforting the people whom this gospel was written to, particularly the Christians in Rome. So let's not miss the encouragement that he's giving to them. Now, in regards to where we are, now this is the, the Sea of Galilee, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the details of Galilee. I want to give you a mental image of there so you can see all the things that, that Christ was seeing as he was walking around it. But this, this message I want to hone in on here. So Jesus begins by preaching the gospel of God. Now, I want to make sure and, and elaborate, this is the gospel from God. So the idea of gospel of God, it's not a gospel about God, it's the gospel from God. Um, so this, sometimes you can read that as thinking gospel of God, so it's a gospel about God. No, it's actually a gospel from God. And so as Jesus comes, he begins to say, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Now to a Jewish ear, there's many things that you have to understand what's being said here. First of all, the word for preaching in verse 14 is a Hebrew word 
that is used throughout the Old Testament by prophets to proclaim the eschatological reign of God. This is the exact same word, proclaim or preach, depending on how it's translated. But Mark is saying Jesus is coming to give the, the revelation of the end of times. Jesus is sparking the kingdom. And so we as believers who have the, the, the joy and gift and gracious um, a tool of having all of Scripture, all 66 books in front of us, we know that Jesus sparked the kingdom of God. By his life being here, he set aflame or set in motion the kingdom of God being established permanently, forever. The already, not yet. So the kingdom has already come, but it's not yet fulfilled. And so Mark is using this terminology here to point back to the Old Testament prophets that said the same kind of thing, that the kingdom of God is going to be established. And then Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's already using language to describe the, the, the message of, God, of uh, Christ. And now he says uh, Christ himself is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God. So the time has come, the kingdom is here. Now, when we think of the idea of the kingdom of God, that is the language used throughout the entirety of the Old Testament to specify and, and understand that the, the day of judgment has come. There is a day of judgment coming. The kingdom of God being established, the day of the Lord, there's different phrases throughout the Old Testament prophets that you can um, see. But there is this idea of the kingdom of God or the end times coming and being at hand. And then Jesus says, repent and believe in the gospel. This is a very heavy message. This is entirely different than what the Jews were expecting the Messiah to say. The Jews all expected the kingdom of God to come. There was no doubt in their mind that God would fulfill his promises, the kingdom would come. But in the Jewish mind, the kingdom of God coming was not a Messiah who said, repent and believe. It was a Messiah who came and said, I am the son of David and puts down the Romans and rebuilds the temple and does all these things and establishes Jewish rule over all the nations of the world. So this was a dramatic change for the hearers of Christ. This is what boils down to a law versus gospel presentation. Because the Jews said the law is where we sit. The kingdom of God will be established by God's law being put into and established as the authority over all the world, both Jew and, and Gentile alike. The law will come in. King David, uh, the, the throne of David will be reestablished and the law will be put in its proper place over all. But Jesus is coming and saying, repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus is saying, re, 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 <clears throat> remove the old thoughts of who you were or what you thought the law was. It's a change of framework. It's actually changing your mind about something. So repentance, a lot of times, I think in, today, uh, in today's world, the idea of repentance has lost its true meaning. It's, it's this conjuring, this harder work. You're going to white knuckle it. You're going to make sure you don't sin again. Repentance is actually much more simple than that. You simply change your viewpoint. You change your mind. You're no longer thinking about something this way. You're repenting and thinking about it this way. It's a change of mind. And so he's saying, repent and believe the gospel. Put aside the way you think before and believe the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. And it seems interesting for us to think of Jesus saying, believe in the gospel when he is the gospel. 
Do you see the, the, how the, the gospel writers has equated the idea of gospel not only being a message, but being a person? So we know already Mark up here says in verse 1, Christ, uh, excuse me, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we know that Mark has already established that the good news is about Christ. But then we know that the title of each one of the Gospels is the Gospel according to Matthew or the Gospel according to Mark. So we have Gospel meaning the message. We have Gospel meaning the life of or the story of. And then we have multiple times throughout the book of Mark where the word Gospel is referenced to a person, Christ himself. And so we, we know that the Gospel writers... Mark's in particular, where we're looking here, has this idea of a gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so this message that Christ is bringing, the authority of this message is entirely different than what anything the Jews would have known up to this point. In fact, it's been said, the gracious activity of God evokes and demands an appropriate response from humanity. Likewise, the gospel, as it is proclaimed by and present in Jesus, can remarkably be summarized in a single indicative. The divine blessing is present in the kingdom of God, and the human obligation is contained in two simple imperatives, repent and believe. Jesus is commanding the people who hear this message to repent and believe. And, and really to apply this first portion of the message to us today, we need to understand what is the message that he is, call, has, is calling us to today in our time. If the Jews thought that the true, God, the true uh, establishment of the kingdom of God was for the, the throne of David to be reestablished and the law of God to be put over, over the top, what do the Gentiles think is the true message that they need to repent from? What, what are our mindsets that we have that we have to repent of and turn from? In our Gentile worlds, I can honestly say that today's main focus of humanity is themselves. That's the main focus of, of what we have to repent from. The Jews had to turn away from the law. At least they had that, right? The law of God is where they were holding up. Still wasn't right, but at least they had that. But in our Gentile world, we have to turn away from ourselves. Humanism has ran so rampant now that we have to change our mind frame or change our mindset, excuse me, and focus on the true meaning of the gospel, which is Christ. And so I want to give us once again a reminder of that good message. The gospel is this that all mankind are sinners. All mankind are sinners. Every human. And the gospel is the good news. That's the bad news. We're all sinners. The good news is, is that Jesus being the Son of God, came and walked this earth as man in perfect obedience to the law of God. And upon walking this earth for three years, sacrificed himself on a cross, submitting to murder by the Romans. And then through his power, three days later, raised himself from the dead and was seated at the right hand of God. And in that gospel, in that good news, we change our mindset away from ourselves and we look to Christ. We change our mindset from our situation and our sins and we look to Christ. And that's essentially what Jesus was calling them to do in that day. That's what this, these first two verses begin with. Leave aside what you think is right because the only truth is me. That's the good news of the gospel. So the authority of the message is where we begin. Number two, the authority over the church. 
That's the second point this morning, authority over the church. Verses 16 through 20. That reads, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> now you may be asking, why is this showing authority over the church? Well, we know that the calling of the disciples in Mark, in his normal um, fast writing style, his shorthand, if you will, only records four of the disciples being called. But these four disciples, nonetheless, are what eventually start the church. The disciples, when you read through the Gospels, you always have to keep in the back of your mind the apostles or these 12 that are called are the establishment of the church. This is how Christ chose his church to begin with. So as I told you guys a moment ago, I want to give you some, some specifics about the Sea of Galilee because I want to put you there if I can at all. So if it's easier for you to imagine, you can close your eyes, but I want you to think about a beautiful lake, a very big lake. It's seven miles wide and 13 miles long. And on this beautiful lake, it's 700 feet below sea level. So it's very deep. It's in a big valley. On the west side, you have mountains. On the east side, you have more like hills. And so you see this beautiful lake. And around this lake are villages nestled in these small, beautiful meadows. In fact, the, the portion of Scripture that Jesus says that the flowers that you see around you are prettier than Solomon's robes, are more beautiful than Solomon's robes, this is where, he's, this is where he is. He's in Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee has an abundance of different kinds of fish. It's, it's very well stocked. Soil is very good. It's just a picturesque, beautiful place to be in. And in fact, the, the fishing industry is so good that there's records in history of places like Rome, Antioch, um, and other Egyptian um, cities fighting over who gets to order and get the fish from Galilee. And so it gives you an idea of the type of men that Jesus is, the, the businessmen that worked hard to, to give their wares out and made their, their stamp across the world. So this is where Christ is. This is where he is now, is walking around this beautiful place. And as he's walking, he sees men doing what they ought to be doing. And I want to give you this picture of what they were likely doing. So when we think of fishing today, we have a rod and a reel and it may be open-faced or closed-faced reel. And, you, you know, you hold the button and you cast it. I'm not very good at fishing. But you hold the button and you cast it out there, right? Um, and, <clears throat> and that's what fishing is to us. But in, in those times, they actually would have a round net, sometimes 10 to 12 feet in diameter, and they would hold out one arm, usually their dominant arm, and there was a specific way that you would wrap the net very carefully on the arm, and then once you got it all in, and there was a weight all the way around the full diameter of the circle, and once you got it on there, you would, there was a special way of casting it that you would move your arm as that, and it would, it would display this net out in its full radius. It would hit the water, and then the weights would carry it down, catching the fish, and the fishermen would actually dive in, collect the, the, 
under the water, collect the weights back together, and bring their fish back up on shore. And so fishing then was dynamically different than it is today. Even from a, a netting, you know, today we pull nets with boats and, and big motorized things and ropes and things. And so fishing then was completely different. So now that I've got you, I hope you can almost smell the ocean. I hope you're there and you can see the men working and they're, they're hot and they're, they're in the water. And here comes Jesus. And he's walking along the way. And he looks at Simon and Andrew he just looks at them, and they're casting a net in the sea. So they're literally in the middle of doing what I just said. It's a very tedious thing, because if you don't get it just right on your arm or cast just right, you have nothing but a mess, and you got to start all the way over. So these men are in the middle of casting a net into the sea, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the follow me is in the imperative mood. In other words, it is a command, not a suggestion. So he issues a command to men on the side of the ocean, on the side of the sea, casting a net, and commands them to come. And what is their response? Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And if they were casting a net into the sea, understand, nets were not easy to make nor cheap to buy. So if they were casting a net, like, follow the, 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 the wording here. Casting a net in the sea. They were mid-cast. They walked away and left it, on the, probably on the bottom of the sea. There's good reason in the, the wording there to think they had just cast the net. They didn't even stop to retrieve their catch. And so the authority that Christ establishes over the church right out of the gate is clearly evident. And this flies absolutely in the face of all the Jewish Jewish traditions of that day. Because in that day, when a rabbi wanted to have students, he didn't go find them. He just made a big enough name for himself that students wanted to come to him. The fact that Jesus went, Jesus went and chose his disciples, chose those who would follow him, was absolutely opposed to the culture of that day. Students went and attached themselves, not the teacher choosing whom he wanted to have as students. And so now he's got their attention. They're following him. They absolutely obeyed his command. So the authority has been established. He issued a command. They followed it. But he adds on this extra phrase here, at least to Simon and Andrew, and the way Mark words it here, it's, it's implied that he uses the same kind of language with James and John. But he says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And ever since I was a little kid, it was just, it was always this idea of fishers of men. It was just a, an odd phrase. But as you dig in, you, you begin to understand that in the Old Testament, um, Habakkuk 1, 14 and 15 is a specific example. You can turn there if you'd like. But God actually uses the idea of fishing for men in a judgmental tone. In other words, he uses the idea of catching men in nets or fishing for men in a, a, a view of judgment to come. So he pulls men into judgment such as a fish is pulled in a net to the fishermen. Habakkuk 1, 14 and 15 reads, And you have made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them. 
The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they are glad and rejoice. So that's just a, a small example of that. But God uses fishing in a way of bringing about judgment. The, the, word, the word picture of bringing about judgment. And so he is in effect telling these men that he's now called to follow him that you will be fishers of men and you will bring people out of the way of destruction of judgment that's coming. So he's already established he's starting the kingdom of God. I am here. The kingdom of God is here. Judgment is at hand. Repent and believe. And now he's calling men who are going to do the job and carry on the, the, the idea, the course of pointing forward to the Great Commission, having this same message of get out of the way of judgment. I'm, I'm fishing for men. There's a judgment coming. Get out of the way. Repent and believe. And that's the message that we as the church are called to take even today, are we not? Go forth into all nations, baptizing, teaching. And so this message here is, is not just about Hooking men with the gospel, if you will, as I've heard it described, fishers of men when you were a kid. Remember, guys, anybody ever go through vacation Bible schools like that? We're going to be fishers of men and the whole thing was almost taken too far, right? But it's this idea of telling people to escape the coming judgment of God. We're fishing for men to repent and believe and get out of the way of the judgment that's coming. Because it's also a look, like, as I mentioned, to the Great Commission. And Mark even brings this same idea back around. So he's in Galilee. Jesus is telling them, I will make you become fishers of men. And in Mark 16, 7, he wraps it back around by the angel sitting in the tomb of Jesus. And he tells the disciples, go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. He was in Galilee telling them, I will make you fishers of men. Now he's calling them back to Galilee to make them become the fishers of men he promised them. The establishment of the church here is absolutely beautiful. Now as he moves along, so he's called Simon Peter. They probably left a net on the bottom of the sea even because it says they were casting a net in the sea at that very moment. And now he gets to James and John. And he doesn't say, Mark doesn't record specifically what Jesus said to them, but it's, it's thought to imply but he used the same kind of language with them. The only difference is, is they were in the boat mending the nets. And mending the net was a lot of work. In those times, it was hard to make. You had to make your own hand, uh, rope and then mend the nets and seal up the holes. And when he called them, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. Now, again, at each one of these points, Jesus is pushing back against what the Jews traditionally would have thought. He pushed back against their message. He pushed back against their idea of um, their idea of how a student is attached to his teacher. And now he's pushing back against the familial aspect of the Jewish culture. To take sons away from their father in front of them was a big no-no. You didn't mess with the family. The patriarch of the family was the one who made all the decisions for the men in his household, the women in his household. He was the one in charge. And yet Jesus walked up to the boat with the father sitting right there and said, you two, come with me. And they left in the middle of a work day, nonetheless. Jesus is establishing his authority over everything 
that he's coming in contact with over absolutely everything. In this particular context, it's, it's been said it is not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus' public ministry in which he called four fishermen into community with himself. Jesus is establishing his authority over the church. In his first act, after getting the Spirit in the, in the wilderness of victory, his first public act, he preached the message and called these men to himself. And there's a few things that, as far as application goes, I want us to walk away with from this particular passage. First of all, Christ builds his own church with his own authority. He calls the person that will be part of his church, and they respond. It is Christ's authority that builds his church. But there's also something else that has to apply here is that we have to understand that to be a disciple of Christ is a radical call to shift in thinking. We have to shift our thinking. He challenged every aspect of the thinking of the Jews by this calling. He challenged how they worked. He challenged their familial relationships. We have to get in our minds that to be disciples of Christ is to abandon everything else. It's to repent of our normal way of thinking, to change how we normally think, and abandon everything else to look to Christ. Now, don't hear me say that when you become converted, you leave your wife and children. Don't hear me say that you no longer honor your father and mother. And don't hear me say you don't go to your job and report as you're supposed to. But what I am saying is that Christ is the primacy above all of that. That Christ establishes his church and to be a disciple in that church is to put him over all other things. He is our number one concern as disciples of his. And he begins to shift that for us. The work of the Spirit within us is what shifts that that we might see it correctly. Number three, the authority over the Scriptures. So we've seen his authority of the message, the, the message that he brings. We've seen his authority over the church as he establishes that. And now we're going to look at the authority over the Scriptures in verses 21 and 22. That text reads, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So now he's moved from Galilee up to Capernaum. Capernaum is the northern part of the sea. So if you went on up around the Sea of Galilee, up to the very top is Capernaum. And this is the farthest reach away from Herod Antipas. Many think that Jesus made this his home base of operation because it's the furthest reach away from Herod, who was the one that arrested John the Baptist for his message. And so with him being up in Capernaum, he's now establishing a new home base of operations, if you will, because you're going to see this throughout Mark. So now he's moved into Capernaum, and the first thing that he does is go into the synagogue. <clears throat> now this is not a, a temple, <clears throat> excuse me, this is not a temple, as we would think of a temple in Jerusalem where there's sacrifices and those types of things. 
This is, not, this is actually a, a synagogue. So the Greek word here is assembly hall or gathering place. This is simply a place of um, a gathering so that the Jews could speak among themselves, could study the scriptures, the Old Testament, and make decisions. And it was required for there to be at least 10 Jews in a common city that were 12 years of age or older to establish a synagogue. So you had to have at least 10 men to do that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And what was what often happened in the synagogues is that the Torah would be read and that it would be expounded upon and discussions would be had about those particular things. So Jesus goes into the Sabbath, uh, excuse me, the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they would have had a calendar at that time um, that they would have read. There would have been pre-planned out specific passages from the Old Testament that they would read to make sure they got through it all. And there would have been something that he would have read and then taught on there, um, which is wildly different than the, the, the Jewish worship services. I, I recently attended one of, recently, probably three or four years ago, um, of the Reform sect of Judaism, um, which is their very liberal um, sect of Judaism. And um, <clears throat> the one thing that struck out to me um, at that particular one was um, the, the, they don't worship God so much as they worship the Torah, um, honestly. The, they, there was a big, um, big shelf back behind that would be closed. They would open it up and they would take the Torah out and they would parade it around the room. And everyone would kiss the Torah. Um, but not with their own mouths. They would have to have their shawls on, and they would kiss their shawl and push, touch the Torah. Um, and there was there was a worship of the physical object itself, not the giver of the object, if that makes sense. Um, and so it's wildly different than maybe what you would think of. Um, but that's that's in Jesus going into this, it was still wildly different even then. So in those days, everyone that would be in part of that group would be standing, and except for the teacher, the one that would sit as the teacher. So he would get up and he would go to the front of the room. And he would take the scroll and he would open it to his assigned passage. He would read it and then he would give the scroll back and he would sit down on the stone. The one who was sitting was the one that was teaching. That was the honorable thing to do in that time. So now that you're hopefully visually in the synagogue here, we can see that Jesus immediately on the Sabbath entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were astonished at his teaching. Amazed, maybe your translation. But he's a, he astonished them, he amazed them, he blew their little brains, if you will. Okay, And so here he is coming in on the Sabbath into this new region and teaching on with such authority that even the scribes could not hold up to his authority. Now a lot of times when we read this, it says, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. We think this is a knock on the scribes. No, this is just simply lifting Jesus up because the scribes of those of that day is not what you consider a scribe that may pop in your mind when you first think of it. Normally, when we think of scribe today, we think of someone who simply writes things down, right? The, the, the scribe of the court system, they just take notes. There's no, you don't have to know anything except how to type, right? In the Old Testament, that's what scribe meant too. So if you read the Old Testament, scribes of the, the courts of David or Solomon were simply men that took notes on what happened in the court. But that is not the case with scribes in the New Testament. They were synagogue rulers. They had uh, an expertise in being a librarian. They had to keep track of everything. Um, they were part of the worship committee, the custodian, school teacher. They would also have authority as far as a Torah expert, so they were considered to be a Torah professor, if you will. 
They were a teacher and moralist, so not only were they supposed to know the Torah, but they were going to tell you how to apply it and how to live rightly. And they were also civil lawyers, so they actually helped make decisions among disputes of people in the area. So the scribes were not men that were of the bottom echelon of, of the Jewish tradition. In fact, they were the only ones outside of the Sanhedrin that were, uh, or excuse me, outside of the, the chief priests that were invited to the Sanhedrin. Normal people could not get into the Sanhedrin meetings. And so these were men of caliber in that day. They were experts, they were professors. And yet Mark makes a note and says, he's preaching as one that has authority. And we know from other gospels that when Jesus would teach in, in about the Old Testament, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, you have heard it said, and then he would quote an Old Testament passage, but I tell you, this is actually what it means. Or he would quote a different text and say, you've heard it mean this, but I'm telling you what it actually means. And so now he's establishing his authority over the word, very word of God. Because he came into this, no doubt, with the same kind of mentality that he taught in other places. It would likely be the fact that he read the text and he applied it as the one who authored it. There was something different. We don't know the exact words he uses. In fact, Mark is very careful throughout his book. You'll notice a very big difference between him and Matthew is that Mark wants you to see Christ by what he does, not by what he says. And Matthew, he very much wants you to see what he says, not what he does. But here in Mark, Mark makes a point to show you Jesus by what he does. And so he comes in, takes this scroll, reads the text, and teaches in such a way that they were all amazed as one having authority. Someone once said, Jesus' word presented with a sovereign authority, which permitted neither debate nor theoretical reflection, confronted the congregation with the absolute claim of God upon their whole person. Jesus' teaching recalled the categorical demands of the prophets rather than scribal tradition. He's taking them back to the root meaning of the Old Testament. That's ultimately what he would have done. And we know based on what he was preaching at the beginning of our text, to repent and believe this was a diametrically different message than what they've been used to hearing. But there's something we should walk away with here when we think about the authority over the message. We submit to the scriptures because of Christ's preeminence over them. Christ is the authority over the word of God. Christ is the authority over the church. Therefore, we submit to the word of God as though it came directly from his mouth because it did. It is breathed out by him. Christ establishes at the very beginning of his ministry multiple things, one of which is, I am the authority over the scriptures. And therefore, we as a church would submit to that. In the Gospel of Mark, the person of Jesus is more important than the subject of his teaching. If we want to know what the Gospel or teaching of Jesus consists of, we are directed to its embodiment in Jesus the teacher. We see the gospel message in Christ and his authority over the scriptures that he has gifted us to then take those scriptures and impact our lives. It's a beautiful thing that we get to see here right at the beginning of this new gospel that we're going through. 
My last point is authority over Satan, verses 23 through 28. Authority over Satan. Let me read verses 23 through 28 first. And immediately there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they were arguing among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. So he has come, he's taught, and then Mark says immediately, in verse 23, immediately there was a man in their synagogue. So at this same moment, so I want you to again picture this with me. Get your, get your mind's eye there. The synagogue is there. The Jews are there standing around listening to the seated teacher. Jesus is teaching with such authority that it's blowing their minds. I, I'm astonished. I can't believe this. And then suddenly, a, someone who's possessed comes up and cries out. The authority of this message is so impactful that the demon couldn't keep his mouth shut. Think about that. The authority of Jesus is so recognized that it drew out Satan's minion. And he cries out and says, What do we have to do with you, Jesus the Nazarene? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And this particular way that, that the demon addresses Jesus is really interesting. Has anybody ever thought that why, why did he call him Jesus the Nazarene, the Holy One? That is, that's obviously his title. We know that that's great. But what does a demon need to do to speak his full name in such a, in a specific and precise fashion? Well, the practice in, that, in those days, it was commonly believed that the way to gain control over a person or an entity, especially in the spirit realm, was to speak their name precisely as it was given to them. So by this demon, understand what this is saying, by in the, the tradition of the intertestamental period. So let me give you some context before I explain here. So during the time between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew is called the intertestamental period. It's about 400 years. During that time, there is recorded in history and in Jewish history as well, but the rabbinic teachings, an insane rise in demonic activity. Just unexplained supernatural occurrences, the closer it got to Christ walking the earth. Just, if you look through history, it's unbelievable the amount of, of demonic um, activity. They knew something was coming, is the bottom line. They knew, they knew that the Messiah was coming. Because it had been prophesied within about a 70-year range, Christ came within that 70-year range, but there was about a 70-year range when the Messiah was supposed to come. And so these demons were rallying, so to speak, making themselves known. There was a lot of spiritual activity. And so as humans, they would attempt to make use of them. You see this in Acts where people would use demons to make money, to fortune tell, um, those kinds of things, to, to try to get demons to leave their family members for those who were oppressed or, or, or possessed. 
And so different methodologies came about trying to control these things. And one of the most common beliefs were, is if you could speak the name precisely as this demon was, that you would garner control. And so this demon has the audacity in what likely is the middle of Christ's teaching to come up and say, Jesus the Nazarene, the Holy One of God. He is literally trying to take control of Christ to defeat him with his words. This recognition formula is not a confession, but a defensive attempt to gain control of Jesus. This demon was so sure of himself, he was trying to take control of the very Son of God. And yet, he couldn't. He couldn't. In the very next verse, verse 25, it says, And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Now you notice, on the flip side of this, if the demon is trying to use the common way of controlling him by using the name and it doesn't work, Jesus doesn't have to use the common way of controlling him. He just commands him. Get out. So now we've seen Christ establishing his authority over the demonic realm as well, completely in the face of all the common belief of that day. So you've seen Jesus completely destroy the cultural beliefs of that time between the message that was counter to what the message they had thought it was going to be, establishing the church against the, the counter idea of, of students picking their teachers. You've seen him destroy the belief of scribes having the ultimate authority over the scriptures and him saying, no, this is truly what it means. And now he's establishing his authority over the demonic. And this demon immediately does exactly what he says. In a fit of, I'm sure, defeat, rage and defeat, verse 26 it says, and throwing him into convulsions, <clears throat> Sorry, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. This is amazing. The immediate way that this demon complied shows the authority of Christ. Physically, tangibly. The people around him are going to, we're going to read it here in just a moment. The people around this would have been absolutely amazed. And in this particular case, let's, let's look at what they say. In verse 27, it says, And they were all amazed, so that they were arguing among themselves. Now we know, some of you may chuckle at this, we know that not all doesn't always mean all, right? So when you say all of the world did something, do you mean every single human being ever made? No, of course not, right? All is different in different contexts. But in this context, this Greek word, literally means all of the people in the synagogue. Every single person that was there was amazed. And they were arguing among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority, and he commands the unclean spirits. Do you think Jesus is trying to show himself to the Jewish people? Because this is what the Old Testament establishes as God. God establishes himself as having authority over his word, over the message. When he spoke to the people and he, had, he establishes his authority as God 
over all the things around them. The most powerful force to people of the Jewish tradition were the demonic. He's establishing himself in their mind's eye as the supreme authority right out of the gate, right in a small synagogue in Capernaum on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He has begun his ministry. But there's also significance here that we have to understand from an Old Testament fulfillment as well. Genesis chapter 3 tells us about the curse that was brought on mankind because of their sin. And in Genesis 3.15, we know that there is going to be an offspring of the woman who will bruise the head of the serpent. And we know that that serpent is Satan. Who will bruise the head of the serpent, stomping his head. Jesus is saying, I am here. The fulfillment. I am establishing my authority over the serpent. I'm establishing my authority over Satan. What was promised to you upon creation, at the creation of time, the Redeemer is here. The one who has this authority is here. <clears throat> I found this quote in one of the commentaries I was researching this week, and I wanted to share it with you because it really, it really just says it better than I can. Jesus' defeat of the strongman. Now, strongman is a, a term that Mark uses later on to describe Satan and his minions. Jesus' defeat of the strong man is not at the expense of Satan's victims, but on their behalf. Not only are unclean spirits expelled, but broken people are restored to health and wholeness and to the possibility of restoration with their creator in whose image they are made. The exousia or authority of Jesus is astonishing, not as a display of Jesus' grandeur, but as a power of redemption for captives. That's the ultimate display that he's bringing here. Yes, the authority over the scriptures is absolutely amazing. The authority over establishing the church is beautiful. The authority over the demons is absolutely paramount to his, his defeating of Satan at the end of time. But he is establishing the grandeur and the power of redemption on his first act of public ministry. We see him redeeming men to himself out of the clutches of Satan, out of the clutches of, of what you would consider death. He, he, this is a precursor to what he's going to do later on on the cross. So now we've seen his excusia multiple, in multiple different ways in today's text. We've seen him establish himself as the ultimate authority. And the application of this last point is we need to know that the kingdom of God has been established and Marx makes sure we know that this kingdom has authority over the kingdom of darkness. The, the, the Christ that we serve, who we are united with, has complete and utter authority over the spiritual realm. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. If day one he established this as authority, we have nothing to fear. Brothers and sisters, we have nothing to fear. There's nothing that this world can throw at us. There's nothing that the realm of darkness can bring about. There's nothing that is outside of his authority, including Satan and his minions. Why should we fear? 
we look to Christ and be encouraged by His authority. So as I conclude this passage today, we've looked at Mark establishing Jesus' exousia. That's an interesting word. This godlike supernatural authority over the highest echelon of the religious leaders. We see Him establish this authority over the church itself. We see Him establish this authority over the unseen realm. And we see His clear authority over the Scriptures themselves. And what I want us to walk away with from this is understanding that the, the, the warrior that Mark portrays Christ is, is established right here. Remember our, our theme for Mark is one of the, the aspects of Christ that we're going to see is the warrior king. He is establishing himself as a warrior king right out of the gate. And now we get to tra track through 16 chapters of him showing this authority in everything that he does. And it's going to be beautiful, and we get to look at it together um, as a church body and studying our Christ. And I want to thank you all. I know my mind and my voice is not normally what it is, so thank you all for sitting through that, because I'm sure it wasn't as easy as it usually is. So thank you for that. But let me pray, and we'll move on with our reflection time. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity for us to come together again and see your authority that you've established at the beginning of your ministry. I thank you for helping my voice to last as you are a gracious King, and I pray that the message was heard that you intended to have heard and that your Spirit would apply it to us, for I am simply a vessel, um, and I pray that your Spirit, um, and that you will be glorified in all things today. Help us as we approach our time of communion to think about the authority that you have over all things, and to meditate on um, resting in you and what you've done for us. In your holy name I pray. Amen.